Welcome to episode four of the Technology and Jobs podcast from the Asian Development Bank. I'm Eric Churchill. So far in this series, we've examined various ways that Asia's workplace and workforce are being changed by new technology. We asked how we should see the rise of the machines as a threat or an opportunity. We've also looked at the way technology could alter the globalized economy and Asia's place within it. In this episode, we look at what lies ahead for the workers of today and for future generations who will join the workforce. What can be done to prepare future workers for the changes that are happening? How much can governments and others do to manage the disruption that will take place? To understand this better, we are taking a close look at the business process outsourcing industry in Asia. These so-called BPOs manage the backroom functions for many businesses around the globe. They've become an important part of the economy of the Philippines, with local workers providing backup for companies in North America, Europe, Australia, and beyond. To understand more about BPOs and their concerns, we went to see one particular company here in Manila. At Convergis, our mission is to set the standard in our industry through unparalleled care for our clients, customers, and people. My name is Rain Tan. I'm the Vice President for Human Resources for Convergis Philippines. Convergis is a business process outsourcer. In the Philippines, we are the country's largest private employer with 55,000 people. We support our clients um, with all of their needs for customer care, uh, technology, um, as well as automation. We service several industries including healthcare, finance, technology, transportation, hospitality. Technology, I think, in any space is always going to be disruptive. It's forced us to change. It's forced us to think about our business differently. And thanks to our clients for your partnership. We are honored a person-filled BPO Center has a future in this country. It might not be in the volume of labor. I don't think I'll be realistic if I say... We're the largest today, and at 55,000, we'll continue to be 55,000 five years from now. Doing the same level of work, I don't think, will require the same number of people. The trend is doing more with less. Thanks to our employees, your commitment, patience... What's important for a worker in this age to stay relevant is how quickly they're able to adapt to change and how quickly they're able to adapt to new technology. We have a set of employees who are exactly like that. They're very quick to adapt to change. And I think for those, they're, they're safe. But there's also a set of our employees who probably started from the early years. If they don't evolve, or if they refuse to evolve, then I think these are the ones that are really going to be under threat. You know, the, the coming age is always so fluid, and in order for us to still be able to play a part in that future, I think we need to be as fluid as the future is shaping up. So there are the thoughts from the BPO sector, which is confronting the very real effects of technological innovation and changes to its business model. To discuss this further and examine what can be done, I'm joined by Elisabetta Gentile and Samir Katiwada from ADB's Economic Research Department. And I'm also welcoming for the first time to the podcast, Tanya Rajadel, who is an education specialist in ADB's Sustainable Development and Climate Change Department. Welcome. So Samir, an 18-year-old Filipino asked you about going into the BPO industry. What do you tell him? Yes, I, I would say uh, given the track record of formal job creation in the Philippines, which is not that great, uh, I would totally advise uh, that 18-year-old to go into the industry. They, it had, they have a future. We've heard 
throughout this podcast, artificial intelligence is taking jobs. You think in 10 years he has a job? Well, let, me, let, me, let me finish my thought. All right, go ahead. So basically, I would start by entering the industry because it pays better than what you would earn elsewhere. It pays about uh, $8,000, dollars $8, per year, which is three or four times higher than the average wages elsewhere in the Philippines, right? So it's still a good job, but you can't last too long in the call center. There are two reasons why. One is the nature of the work, but the second, actually, technology is changing the landscape of call center jobs, right? So you need to come up with some kind of specialized skills that you bring into that job, whether it is in healthcare or whether it is uh, in computer programming. You got to bring something a bit more different. Okay. Because that's where the pay rises come from. And BPO industry in the Philippines is moving sort of towards the higher value jobs in the in this type of industry where basically if you're a software developer then you're more likely to earn better wages and you are not under threat of automation you could actually last longer in that industry so yes enter but keep in mind you have to skill yourself you have to equip yourselves for the type of jobs that are being created in the industry okay well um, let me bring tanya into this i mean so samir is telling me i gotta maintain my skills but i'm already in the workforce what am i what am i going to do well, from what I've seen in the Philippines, it's really up to the individual to uh, to do so. Um, so there is an access issue in terms of finding uh, sufficient financing to subsidize your your own training. Um, this can be that this can be really challenging. Some banks here in the Philippines are starting to look into providing student loans to um, young people uh, interested in uh, pursuing vocational training, um, but also it's still um, pretty marginal yet. It hasn't yet uh, completely taken off. Um, so a lot of people rely on their families and and savings from. So of course, if you've worked in the BPO industry, you might have saved enough money to uh, to go on to further training. Okay, Samir. I just wanted to add to Tanya's uh, point there. Basically, you know, in, in the call centers, a lot of the workers are actually college students. So they are they're students at the university, but they're doing this sort of almost on the side. They're earning, so it goes back to like saving some money so they could further their education, so they could be even more sort of marketable elsewhere and higher paid jobs. So that is actually ha taking place right now because a lot of those young people, they don't stay too long in call centers. They really don't because the, the job is just not, it's very taxing. And second, it doesn't have a long-term future. And it is true that they have to sort of invest in a longer-term plan for their careers. Yeah, and I think for all of us living here in Manila, you can see how taxing this is. You see a lot of people working overnights to answer phone calls and, and do work for businesses that are in a completely different time zone. Elizabeth, I want to bring you in here because you, you have talked to some uh, of the business owners in this industry and have some perspective on that. Yes, um, obviously it comes down to that your priority list. As a BPO uh, company, you have to decide if turnover is good or bad for you or absolutely indifferent. If the turnover you think is bad for you, then you have to find opportunities for career development to retain these individuals within the company. So you're talking about the decision to skill up your workforce? Exactly. Okay. So uh, if the employee turnover at the call center is not something that um, procures losses to the business, then you might not have any interest in that. 
But if instead uh, you think that turnover is actually a negative, the only way to, to tackle this problem is by offering career developing oppor development opportunities within the company. And again, um, this also has uh, repercussions on the type of technology that the, that the BPO firm will actually uh, be interested in adopting. Because if uh, we think that the human component and high turnover is really not a problem, then we might be even interested in replacing the workers altogether with uh, some kind of uh, automated system. I mean, I'm sure all of us have already experiences with the automated menus that guide us. To yeah, they drive me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not the only one there. Um, but uh, alternatively, uh, we can think of technologies that actually empower the human component by working alongside the human component and increasing productivity, but also increasing um, the, the contribution, the unique contribution that the human worker has to give in this context. Okay, so that's, that's an interesting point, and it, it kind of allows us to shift gears, because I want to bring this out a little bit. Away from BPOs, I want to talk about um, how we prepare for what's coming more generally. Um, in the BPO sector, you've got the private sector who's taking some initiative, it sounds like. But governments have a role to play as well. And, and Tanya, I want to bring you in on this, because I know that you've been working in China, and I know that aging is a huge issue there and they're doing some interesting things there tell me tell, tell me about the this issue of polytechnics and 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 training in the in the medical field for uh, for geriatric services right so um, so as we all know China uh, face, is facing this uh, tremendous issue of uh, of aging uh, their population is aging very rapidly um, so they realized they've realized very recently that actually they they that the need for elderly care services was, was expanding very fast. And they realized that they had a huge human resource gap. Um, of course, they have uh, a strong healthcare, well, relatively strong healthcare sector uh, with people who are trained uh, uh, medically. But um, they realized that they didn't have the, the right types of, uh, of skills needed to provide um, integrated elderly care services to their population. Um, and this means both high-level uh, skills, so um, people, um, medical professionals uh, specialized in geriatrics, so neurologists for Alzheimer's disease, for example, but also mid-level and low-level um, people. And that is where um, the skills gaps were actually uh, very strong. Um, right now, China relies a lot on a traditional model. Skill, uh, okay, I'm sorry. Let me stop you there. Skills, the skills gap. I mean, what, what does that mean? Does that mean that they, ha they have the nurses, but they don't know how to deal with the old People, is so that there's it? Both. <laughs> there's, there's, uh, they do have nurses, um, but indeed nurses and uh, general practitioners are not trained, uh, properly trained to uh, deal with the specific uh, health needs of an elderly population. Okay. Um, but also they are lacking uh, caregivers, trained caregivers. So these are people who are not as skilled as nurses, right, who don't have um, a, a medical um, certificate, but who are absolutely essential. I mean, the backbone of 
of uh, elderly care services. And right now, people rely on families a lot. But you know, the society is changing. Um, young young people are migrating to cities to work and are leaving their parents in uh, parents behind in rural areas. So there's no one to really take care of uh, of, um, of the population of the uh, sorry uh, elders. So we have uh, several projects right now um, at ADB to um, help address this uh, this skills gap. And um, one of them is to really, uh, well, all of them are actually trying to address it across this the, the spectrum. So to train uh, caregivers, um, so at, this is at the low end of the of the of the of the skills uh, skills needs, um, so th so that they can provide the type of care that is needed and and help people age in place, stay at home, provide home and community based care at the uh, at the local level, uh, but also and these these are people who need um, short term training in vocational uh, training centers. It can be. Um, like 12 weeks uh, training course. It doesn't have to be very long. And are these are these young people? Exactly. Or are they, okay. So a lot of these people are actually middle-aged workers who are uh, reskilling, retraining to work in the elderly care industry as some um, some of their factories are closing. So we have an interesting project in, uh, in the Hebei province in which, um, so in several counties, we are setting up some training uh, courses for caregivers. And a lot of them are actually people who have been laid off by local factories, a textile industry that's just closed, a brick-making um, company that uh, has just closed. And these are people who are interested in retraining uh, to work in the elderly care sector as uh, caregivers. But what we also want to do is to help uh, improve um, career prospects for people in the elderly care sector. It's not a very well, it's not a very high-paying um, job to be a caregiver. Um, career prospects might be limited. But uh, what we're also trying to do is uh, develop training courses so these people can also ultimately start training to become nurses um, through uh, vocational uh, train local vocational training centers. Okay, so Elisabetta, let me let me kick this over to you because I, we've heard a lot about China. This sounds amazing, but we know China is a lot different than a lot of our other countries. I mean, is this kind of, is what China is doing in this space, is that replicable across, we've heard so much about the range of sectors that are at risk um, and that will require really drastic changes. Are governments in this region, are they going to be able to make this change the way that China has already, and it seems to be already anticipating this change in the healthcare sector? Uh, I thank you for this question because it's a very nice way to connect what Samir and Tanya were discussing. I think uh, Samir has mentioned informality and informality is still a huge problem in many of our member states. There are now on top of that dealing with this changing uh, labor market and with all the implications that we have discussed. Um, when you have someone who has acquired skills in an informal context, uh, these people are pretty much excluded often from all these opportunities. No matter how many shiny new programs you develop, these people don't have a certificate to back up uh, the fact that I have been doing this job for 25 years and says, who? You really have no track record. So in this context, first and foremost, recognition of prior learning and making sure that these people are some have pathways into the formal training uh, uh, system is very important. Tanya, you want to jump in? Yes. Um, 
I actually was um, listening to uh, to Elizabeth right now. I was thinking about what Bangladesh is doing. Um, in, and the government has uh, really worked very closely with industry associations in Bangladesh in quite a few sectors to help actually move up the value chain. So we know that the textile industry in Bangladesh needs to really uh, try to you know, move up, uh, upskill uh, its labor force, but it's also true in the electronics industry and construction, etc. So they've been working very closely with industry associations that already existed, but that needed strengthening to help them um, rethink uh, what, well, help them, um, sorry, strengthen their capacity to assess skills needs, and then to develop their own training programs and, and create their own training centers, develop their own training programs, reskill uh, their workforce, and also, as uh, Elizabeth was mentioning, ensure that people have a certificate at the end of their training course. So they've been um, working very closely with them to develop short-term training courses that can just be like three to six months training courses with the industry associations and with companies uh, involved in the sector, so on-the-job training. But also, uh, and this I think is really interesting, um, starting to look at to the, the mid-level uh, management uh, needs because these are the people and, and this is actually um, uh, a type of uh, occupation that is uh, tends to be um, overlooked um, these are supervisors and middle management are the ones who are actually working in the factory floor with the with the with the workers and they're the ones who know what type of skills are missing and how to retrain them, what the needs are. And also importantly, they're the ones who are helping people, who are training, on, who are training people on the job. So I think that um, there's some interesting things going on. I can, I can see Samir here. He wants to jump in. No, on, on this whole conversation on, on skills gap, you know, one thing that we ought to keep in mind, I, th I think, is that in a way there will always be a skills gap, right? So it's because the, the reason why that is the case is because the, the demand for skills are always is a bit ahead than the supply for skills because supply for skills usually comes from university education or or, or, or secondary education. So there's always that gap. So that goes back to actually what comes out in our uh, in our study that we just came out with is that the the importance of foundational uh, education as key, right? So that allows uh, workers to to learn, to, to relearn, to sort of have, you know, have the ability to sort of work with new technology, right? That goes back to having a good foundation. So otherwise, we'll always, the, the skills gap is sort of like a chicken and egg problem, right? It's always going to be there. We're always catching up to it. It's a bit like regulation, right? Regulation is always behind what's happening in the free market. So that this problem will always be with us. And because we'll, and the skills survey, when we do that, it's always asking employers. And employers are, are going to say, you know what? I don't find the workers, right? So they're going to come up with something along those, along those yeah, lines. No, it actually, no, I was thinking because, you know, um, we conduct a lot of skills assessment surveys before before uh, implement um, sorry before designing and then implementing projects and sometimes we have focus group discussions with employers and something that often comes out actually is yeah we can find some of the technical skills but the problem is the minute we want to retrain our workers we realize that they're lacking foundational skills on which we can then build to uh, set up these retraining programs. So employers themselves in some sectors have actually identified this as a, as a, as a constraint, but they can't do much about that. This is really up to the, you know, the, the primary and secondary education to provide these foundational skills. We can't ask employers to uh, go back and provide literacy programs or even digital literacy programs to their employees. That's very difficult. Okay, Elizabeth. Connecting very nicely with what uh, Tanya was talking about, I had a conversation. I had a conversation with policymakers in uh, 
in Jakarta, and they were telling me the same thing. And they were saying that this is much more of a widespread problem because it often concerns individuals who on paper have shiny educational credentials. And then within a, in, 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 in a, in a team environment where you know they're supposed to take inputs and provide outputs so they 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 collapse like a like a castle of playing cards so uh this is a very widespread issue in the region okay so i i take your points that they we we need very specific job skills for changing new occupations and we've got to have foundational skills on top of that but if you listen to what's happening in the west uh with the, the gutting of perhaps the manufacturing sector, for example. These are not necessarily workers that don't have foundational skills. These are not necessarily, they should have the capacity to relearn and, and do different things, but there are no jobs left. I mean, what happens in Asia as, 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 as these industries, what if the garment industry doesn't exist in, in 15 years in Bangladesh? I mean, these, we're not talking about you know, minor changes to 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 someone's education, Elisabetta. Well, Eric, uh, allow me to push back a little bit on your assessment that there are no jobs left. I don't think that the problem is that there are no jobs left. The problem is what Tanya was saying before that the skills of the new jobs don't match the skills of the jobs, the skill profile of the workers who are looking for jobs. And here again, what Tanya was discussing before comes in very nicely because we have to provide avenues for these workers by reskilling them and we have to reskill them fast. You cannot go, this is another major problem. You cannot go to a worker who has a family and tell them, yes, sure, you can enroll in here two years and you will be good and ready. Two years is too long for, even for countries with very generous welfare systems, two years is too long. This is where we really have to uh, uh, flip the whole concept of skilling and reskilling and thinking, how do we give them what they need and do it, how do we do this fast? We are talking three months. We are talking four months. And, uh, and how do we even build in incentives in the system so that this actually happens? Um, uh, the, 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 the trainees themselves have an incentive to complete faster, for example, with rebates on their course fees or, uh, you know, some kind of other positive enforcement of this kind. This is fundamental. Okay, Samir. Just to add to that, you know, what Elisabetta was saying, there, there are still a lot of jobs. The, the, the whole premise of no, there are no jobs, that's fundamentally wrong. The reason why I say that is because one of the analyses we did for the, for, the, for the ADO this year, for the Asian Development Outlook, is that we looked at new occupations and we found that actually, yes, there are new jobs being created. They're being created. And, but what is happening, Eric, I give you that, is that they are mostly being created in non-routine cognitive category. What does that mean? What that means, they're not your repetitive, they don't involve too many repetitive tasks, and they require a bit of brain power, right? And language skills and, uh, and, and social interactive skills, this kind of skills. So that's where the new jobs are being created. But then when you look at other areas, even in routine jobs, they're also being created in Asia, because Asia still, we are starting from a low base, we're still getting richer. So in large parts of developing Asia, even those jobs are growing. But it is true that by and large, most of the new jobs are in your non-routine cognitive category. And now the, the, the onus on the government and, and the policymakers is how to prepare your workers for those new occupations, right? That's what it goes back to. It goes back to the conversation on foundational skills, 
right? Maybe that is the key in sort of leveraging technology going forward. Okay. Well, I, I, before we, we leave this, I, I think that it's important. Several of us in this room are, are parents to young children. What do you tell Samir? You, you're from Nepal. You got, a, you got a child on the way, right? Congratulations. Thank you. What, what path should they be taking in order for, their, for them to have lifelong, fulfilling work in Asia? Look, uh, that's a very difficult question. I, I, don't, I don't pretend to know the answer to that. Uh, you know, we just, we just uh, as you know, as a parent, you just try and it's it's a, a trial and error right so but but you know look i mean you know I, I was talking to to, to my wife who uh, part of her childhood she was in the soviet uh, and then they, her family moved to switzerland and so when we talk about our own own education uh, background you know i grew up in Kathmandu and went to schools in nepal and when you look at what we were taught and and the training systems we went through you know a large part of it was uh, also this uh, road to learning was part of it. And I, I, I hated that uh, as a kid that I had to memorize things, right? So now we don't, you don't no longer have to memorize, right? But then we also got these, uh, you know, good sort of education in science and math. And as it turns out, when we went... Foundational skills. Foundational skills. So when we went to the, when I went to the U.S. for, for, for college and, and, and grad school, I realized that actually my foundation in those areas were pretty solid, even though I didn't think that when I was in Nepal, right? So those things are very important. So, you know, to my kids, uh, you know, you, you know we, can't, we can't focus on things that a machine can do better, right? So we got to uh, look at skills that are different than machines will ever be able to replicate. That's where it goes back to what Tanya was saying earlier is that, you know, sort of skills that require uh, outside of the box thinking, maybe making sense of, take the example of internet, right? Internet has so much resource. For a researcher these days, when you want to find something, it's easy to go on the internet. But it is a special skill to make sense of all that information that's out there and you synthesize in a nice, succinct manner. That's a real skill these days, right? Well, I can tell you that my three-year-old, the way that she convinces me to give her dessert every night, it seems like something that a machine could never replicate. It is, it is using logic that goes beyond me. That, that's exactly that's exactly right. And I think, you know, kids are smart. We, we know this, right? So the thing is, I think the schools for the longest time were built to take, I, I mean, forgive me for saying this, but they took creativity away from the kids by sort of, you know, this system where we were all meant to be a certain way. I think we are moving away from that slowly because the world is changing. And I think we, we I would sort of foster that with my kids uh, hopefully going forward. Okay, Tanya, we'll give you the last word. You know, education systems also, and employers need to rethink uh, traditional models. Um, it means that some universities right now in the US are thinking about um, creating um, sort of packages for people where you'd go in and you would um, have a package of a certain number of months of uh, credits of education that you could then use throughout your lifetime. And I think that's an interesting approach. And we need to uh, let uh, training institutions and, and universities come up with new models that might fit our needs a bit better. But it also means that employers need to be open to different untraditional trajectories and when they're trying to recruit people to, to, to be open to these pathways that might not be um, the typical pathway that they used to. So, you know, everyone has a role to play in this and it's not just up to uh, individuals. That's a great way to end it. I mean, I, th I think that 
we have covered just how extensive uh, this, this issue is, whether it's governments, whether it's the education sector, as individuals, the private sector. Um, this is, uh, in, in order to address the, the challenge of technology and jobs, all of these actors will have to be involved. This is the final episode in the Technology and Jobs podcast from the Asian Development Bank. I hope it has helped stimulate thought on an issue which is going to be preoccupying governments, businesses, and individuals throughout our region. My thanks, as always, to Samir Katiwada and Elizabeth Gentile from the Economic Research Department, along with our special guest in today's edition, Tanya Rajadel. Additional special thanks today to my co-producer, Andrew Perrin, to our senior researcher, Pima Arizala. Our studio technician is Brian Manuel. Richard Myron is our executive producer. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, like, or comment on your favorite podcast app. More information on the issues discussed today are available online at adb.org. And please join our conversation at hashtag Future of Work.